Good morning. I mean, hello and welcome to Hell No, a true crime podcast with your host, Lauren Lucio. And it's early. Okay, it's not early. It's like noon, but I worked late last night. I slept in. I'm tired. But you know what? I really, really, really want to record my podcast today so you guys can get that episode for the weekend. Yeah. Everybody, I just want to do this. That's me clapping because this is my 25th episode, which means I am halfway through my first season. I don't know if there'll be 50 episodes, but there could be, I'm going to say maybe 48. I've said it before. I will say it again. I'm so thankful to everybody listening and recommending me to your friends and family. I have a friend who's been listening since day one, literally day one, episode one, even before I started this podcast, we had been talking about true crime for a while. He's a huge true crime fan. He's a huge supporter of mine and many other amazing podcasts. I know he's listening right now. So thank you so much, Johnny. I really appreciate it. This week's case, it's a Canadian one. Johnny, you'll love that. You're Canadian. (laughs) It's a Canadian one. It's one maybe you have heard, but you haven't heard it from me. So let's just get into it. It is pretty brutal. I will start by saying that. Um, so the brutality is real. 2005, Medicine Hat, Alberta, Canada. 11-year-old, 11-year-old, Jasmine Richardson, grade 7, is discovering bad girl life and she is swapping out all her pink cute dresses for the exact opposite she had developed very fast and and you wouldn't even be able to tell that last year she was just 10 years old she did not look like she was just a 10 year old girl last year she was wearing very heavy dark makeup so that does make anybody look older as i get older i have to ease back on that because i also really like dark heavy makeup i've never been good at my makeup but getting older it makes me look a lot older so anyways jasmine was 11 years old she was putting on this dark heavy makeup making her look much older than 11 maybe 16 17 years old she was getting into punk music rock music metal music heavy metal music her color of choice to wear was now black and you know what i have no judgment on this topic because at that age i was going through something extremely similar maybe not 11 but for sure 12 and 13 so jasmine had um online profiles she had her myspace she had other platforms that i'd never heard of like nextopia and zorpia so i don't know if those were before no would have been after my time i'm assuming i remember myspace whatever those are whatever okay so she had them she was always saying that she was older on her profile she was saying like 15 16 because she she looked at nobody questioned this her username was runaway devil her interests were all her interests were all dark things like hatchets serial killers blood and um kinky shit that's a quote that's an actual interest you could put on your profile Uh, okay it's never a good sign when violent things are in the same category as sexual things something may be wrong perhaps there's some wires crossed but you know violence killing and sexual things should never be in the same category It's fine if she's interested in studying serial killers. Of course, you guys know I'm going to say that. You know I do this every week. Um, But I don't know. Just putting kinky shit alongside serial killers, it just seems like she's either trying to get a reaction or fit inside this box she's built for herself or there is something really wrong. I don't know. I'm not a psychologist. I'm not a psychiatrist. I'm not a therapist. I'm not a counselor. So I don't know. That's just my opinion from reading tons and tons and tons of true crime. You might be thinking, why is Jasmine rebelling so hard? What 
is with the sharp left turn she's done in her life. Well, she is preteen, so life is hard and dramatic, of course, but it wasn't because she was having trouble at home. This we know for sure. Jasmine parent, ja- morning time. Jasmine's parents, Mark and Deborah, were such good people. They had a bumpy road in their 20s, but since then they were pillars in the Narcotics Anonymous group. They were a part of that group. Um, They have gotten and stayed clean for many, many years. Deborah was a sponsor and mentor, and both her and Mark, they were all about helping people get on the right track. They were both in their 40s now, so they had been, you know, they had lived this this clean lifestyle for over two decades. Uh, Mark had a, uh, he had a good job, which allowed them to buy a home. Deborah was a great mother and she was even planning to open her own business. She was into Reiki. She wanted to heal people. I don't know much about Reiki. seems like an energy healing thing. So again, with that helping of people, that's what she wanted to do. Now that her children were more independent, she could pursue these pathways jasmine um they also she also had an eight-year-old brother named jacob and he just like jasmine before her left turn in life he's sociable he had a lot of friends very sweet really loving little boy just beautiful about a year into Jasmine's punk rock dark transformation, she starts going to these all ages rock punk metal shows uh, and concerts with her friends, which I mean, kids do do that. A lot of people are like, what? She's 12 years old and she's going alone with friends to concerts and stuff. They're all ages. It happens all the time in Canada. At least I know anyways, maybe in America. I don't know. I can't speak for any other countries but the, in those two countries at that age I was also going to all age metal punk rock shows I used to do that with my friends but looking back on it now I'm like yikes how am I alive just like Jasmine I used to convince people I was older get them to buy me booze yikes sorry mom so one night I believe it was in the late 2005 ish area she's at a show It could also be early 2006. I couldn't get an exact date on this. At that show, she meets a 23-year-old man named Jeremy Steink. So I think it's Steink. I'm going to say Steink. I've heard it pronounced several different ways. It's S-T-E-I-N-K-E, Steink. Jeremy, he's had anything but an easy life. He's been abused. He's been beaten by his biological father, both his stepdads and his mom's boyfriends in between her husbands. He's been moved around a lot his whole entire life, having never made strong connections, never making those lifelong friends, which is so important because children, they need people to confide confide in at a young age. They need peers that they can trust. He's isolated by his awkwardness. He's bullied. His mother is an alcoholic. She was even arrested for stabbing one of her boyfriends once. He came from a very violent home and he had no idea what it was like to have a stable, safe life ever so you can imagine he is badly damaged and he is desperate for acceptance and love it is possible that his fight or flight response is permanently stuck on as a survival coping method jeremy had even attempted suicide once before he needed help and he just wasn't getting it Jeremy had been using drugs like cocaine, LSD, and ecstasy since he was in his teens, and he also drank a lot. This is a deeply troubled man, and boy, this was a deeply troubled boy, now man, trying to escape reality. It was reported that Jeremy could be violent, and also that Jeremy told people that he was a werewolf, and he could eat them, and he actually believed that he was a 300-year-old werewolf a 23 year old man who hangs out with 12 year old girls and genuinely believes that he's a 300 year old werewolf okay can somebody please intervene but this yeah this is only going to end badly 
Children who grow up around violence and fighting tend to be more aggressive, probably because that's what they've learned is how to deal with confrontation or to deal with their problems. And in quite a few cases, these children also have post-traumatic stress disorder, depression, anxiety, and they have to deal with a real mixture of complex emotions at such a young age, such as guilt, helplessness, um, and this is all according to pathwaystosafety.org. It was also believed that Jeremy may have been born with fetal alcohol syndrome, which causes brain damage and can make learning very hard as well as regular development and maturing. Jeremy is immediately in love with Jasmine. So let's go back to the show. So now we know who Jeremy is. They meet and Jeremy loves Jasmine. Since Jeremy is older and he hangs around this very young crowd, he is seen as really cool by these peers. He's hanging around like 12, 13, 14, 15, 16 year olds. He's 23. He can buy booze. He can buy cigarettes. He can drive. But what I found strange is that Jeremy didn't really make his transition into this like rocker goth punk phase until a year earlier at until he was like 22 so I don't know if he had always listened to metal music and it just kind of he just got the style when he moved to Medicine Hat because I believe he was he was pretty new he hadn't been living there his whole life and perhaps maybe he just found this crowd and he just took on this persona so he was like new into the scene with these kids and they accepted him. He was their friend. They were his friends and he really wanted that acceptance in his life. February 2006, Jasmine and Jeremy, they start dating officially. He had asked her out in an email. So that's happening now. She's 12. He's 23. But that's happening now. Their, ra- their relationship, their relationship, <laughs> man, morning recordings, their relationship was also sexual. So yeah, that was also happening. She's 12. They both seemed to use a platform called Nextopia. And Jasmine's screen name was, again, Runaway Devil. And Jeremy's screen name was Soul Eater. Okay. Later, police will seize 4,000 pages for review from this platform as evidence. Jeremy's online profile on, on one of these sites, it was very concerning. He stated his dislikes as, and I'm, I'm quoting him, this is not my word, quote, prostitutes. He dislikes prostitutes. And then he goes into detail about murdering them and then disemboweling his victims and playing with the entrails. Then he tops it all off with a racial slur, claiming to hate an entire race of people. It's just, it's just a lot to handle on a profile. Jasmine's parents can see what's happening, and somehow they must have found out Jeremy's age. She's been grounded for hanging around questionable older people. I don't know if her parents would have seen it as questionable. They're very open people, you know what I mean? But she had been grounded for dating an older man let's just say that i mean they're like okay jasmine you're 12 he's 23 i don't want you seeing him i don't want you talking to him so they kind of put a ban on this um they're like pump the brakes jasmine you can't date this guy and she had also been hanging around a few older boy men i don't know how really how old they were but they were older than her and that her parents had also said hey can you please not get involved with older men So Jasmine's parents, they can see what's happening. They do try to intervene. And somehow it just didn't work. You know, there's internet now. There's emails. There's MySpace. There's messaging. It's a whole thing. Jeremy's emails, they're getting more and more intense. He really jumps headfirst. He dives into the deep end, into all the love yous and death till us part and just stuff like that. And it's only after one month of dating. This makes me wonder if this is why he isn't dating women his own age. Because a 20-something-year-old woman, I feel like if it moves that fast, there's going to be a ton of red flags raised. But to a 12-year-old girl, that might seem romantic. That might seem like true love. I was a 12-year-old girl. And you know what? Relationships, they just can't move fast enough, it seems, as a, as a preteen or a teenage girl. The emails, 
Oh, they made me cringe big time. Jeremy was writing like, tee hee hee. Okay, he's 23 years old and he's finishing his emails with tee hee hee, tee hee. And using the term cuddle bunny. It was just, it was more than I could bear to, <laughs> to hear, honestly. Jasmine's parents, they now find all the emails. And I could only imagine the horror in their faces while reading them. They are not comfortable with this situation at all. And now they take away Jasmine's internet. But the emails keep coming. When a teenage girl wants to read and send emails, she will almost always certainly find a way. They're in schools. They're in libraries. Computers are in, in, <laughs> in schools and libraries. It's about mid-March by this time. So they have been dating less than a month when Jeremy asked Jasmine in an email if she would like to to get together and um and kill people together and jasmine says that sounds like fun so it begins jasmine she is so fed up with her parents grounding her and giving her rules and she tries to get placed into foster care but once she admits that there is no violence in the home she is declined not really sure her plan there but she thought she would be free to do whatever she wanted if she could just get removed from her home it wasn't long after they started talking about killing jasmine's parents but they weren't keeping this quiet they were talking about it to a lot of people jasmine would tell her friends she wished her parents would die jeremy would talk about it online in the nextopia platform to friends and pretty sure ja so okay so jasmine she was sneaking out at night to see jeremy i'm pretty sure this and and one night after he gifted her his blood his werewolf blood which confused me because it seems more like a vampire gift i don't know i don't know these things but he called it his gift of love and she loved it or his item of love he called it his item of love these two they really had some kind of romantic idea about blood and murder and i don't know i don't i just don't get it jasmine's mom and dad enrolled her into counseling because they were like okay these emails they're not good so they enroll her in counseling and she went i think it was like family counseling so they all went and she was starting to come around she was starting to respond to them better be nicer she was still grounded from the internet but they um but what they didn't know she as she had been using the library computers to talk to jeremy they didn't know that the two lovers they were not happy about being kept apart and jasmine tells jeremy that she has a plan and she wants to kill her parents so she can live with Jeremy. Jeremy responds, hey, that's a short-sighted plan and maybe we should just, you know, put our relationship on hold for six years until you're 18 and do the right thing and maybe not talk about killing people. <sighs> no, he didn't. That is not what he said at all. That is... No, that is not what he said at all. He actually encourages the plan and suggests they work out the details. Mm -hmm. April 3rd, 2006. Jeremy posts on Nextopia. Payment. Okay, quote, sorry. Quote, payment. My lover's rents are totally unfair. They say they really care. They don't know what's going on. They just assume their throats I want to slit. Finally, there will be silence. Their blood shall be payment. Unquote. So that's summing it up. I think the entire thing was really, really long, but that's the gist of it. The next day, Jeremy's friend on Nextopia under the screen name Super Jesus responds to Jeremy and asks, how's it going? with his girlfriend and jeremy tells super jesus that jasmine's parents might be affecting their relationship so they are planning to kill them to which super jesus responds l m a f o nice <laughs> to which jeremy responds yippers with a z yippers and he also says the best part is it was all her idea Aha, uh -huh. you can see why these pages were later taken into evidence. Jeremy then goes on to talk about how he wants to go out. Um, how he wants to go out and get in a fight because he feels like killing someone right now, which is scary. Plans to murder 
are really starting to heat up and it's being talked about more and more. In fact, Jeremy was trying to recruit a friend to help him and I believe he asked that friend more than once and the friend was like, no, no way. I'm not going to help you do that. That is no, 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 no. This brings us to April 22nd, a Friday in 2006, only two months into Jasmine and Jeremy's relationship. Jeremy starts drinking. He's drinking beer. He's drinking more beer. He's drinking vodka. He's going around to his friend's house trying to convince him to come murder Jasmine's parents with him. His friend is refusing. Jeremy is begging him to help. But luckily the friend will not agree. He will not help. So they watch Jeremy's favorite movie, Natural Born Killers. And he even mentions the difference in that and his plans to that movie. If you haven't seen this movie, it's about lovers who kill one of their parents so they can be together, but they leave the child alive. And and that's where Jeremy says they won't be doing that. 3 a.m. rolls around. Okay, it's 3 a.m. Rolls around. Jeremy goes to another's friend's house. This friend just happens to sell cocaine. Is it a friend? Is it a cocaine dealer? Oh, we don't know. Maybe a bit of both. He goes to this guy's house and Jeremy apparently does a lot, a lot of cocaine and takes some ecstasy and continues to drink. So he has got to be out of his mind by this point. An hour later, an hour later, just one hour after consuming cocaine, ecstasy, more alcohol, he heads to Jasmine's house. And this is where I get shivers in the similarities between this case and the Twilight murder case that I covered. If you haven't listened to that case after this one, go listen to that one. You'll know what I'm talking about. We'll talk more about that after actually. I'll, I'll, first, let me just tell you what happens next. Jasmine lets Jeremy in through a downstairs window. They were making a lot of noise and Deborah wakes up and runs downstairs to see what's going on. When she is met with a man wearing a black mask, waving a knife around, Deborah was attacked and stabbed 12 times. She had several life-threatening stab wounds, including one to her lung, stomach, and the fatal blow hit her aorta. She did not die immediately. It would have been terrifying and painful for this innocent woman who devoted her life to helping people overcome addiction just to be knifed down in her home by an outrageously high attacker. And they could tell by blood evidence later that after she was attacked and bleeding on the floor, she was moving around. That's how they know that she didn't die quickly. Absolutely terrible. So Mark, he can hear the commotion and he comes running down the stairs with a screwdriver. And I wish so bad that Mark would have been able to overpower Jeremy. And for a moment, it even appeared that he might. And he almost stabbed Jeremy in the chest with the screwdriver. But somehow Jeremy got the screwdriver away from Mark. And in an attempt to blind his attacker, Mark tries to lodge his thumbs into Jeremy's eye sockets. But somehow Jeremy wiggles out of it and stabs Mark 24 times. But before Mark made one, but okay, so before all of these 24 stabbings happened, like in the midst of it all, Mark made one last effort to strangle his attacker. Unfortunately, Mark lost the fight and it wasn't quick for him either. He had died as a result of blood loss because he had been stabbed so many times. This would have been so horrifying and scary, but what is truly haunting about this is that when Mark was dying, he looked up at Jeremy wearing that black mask. He didn't know who it was. He didn't know what was happening. And he asked, why? And Jeremy said, it's what your daughter wanted. I can't even fucking imagine what Mark's last thoughts must have been but it absolutely breaks my heart that that's the last thing he heard. 
When Jeremy walks up the stairs covered in blood after this brutal attack, he finds Jasmine in the kitchen and she starts hugging him and kissing him and telling him how much she loves him. Like she is so over the moon that her parents are dead and she didn't have to get her hands dirty. She is so thrilled. She is so happy about what's going on. It's disgusting. This next part, it gets even worse. I know you think this can't get worse, but it gets worse. Because remember, she's got a little brother, eight-year-old Jacob. So this is a warning. If you don't want to hear this, skip ahead a couple minutes. Jasmine then goes upstairs to find her little brother and he's in his bed and he's scared. He doesn't know what's going on, but he knows it's not good. Jasmine then tries to strangle him, but he gets away. I don't know if he wiggled out of it or how he got away, but he gets away. And it like something out of a horror movie, Jeremy is walking up the stairs covered in blood, high as fuck on cocaine, breathing very heavy. And he would have looked like a monster because he is a monster. Jacob was then stabbed four times before his throat was slit by Jasmine. Jeremy later claims he had nothing to do with Jacob's murder. Jacob was discovered in his bed, but the blood evidence shows that the struggle happened all over the bedroom as if he was running away and struggling the entire time. Like the, the blood spatter, the blood patterns had moved all over the room. The entire room was covered in blood. After they are sure everyone in the house is dead, Jeremy runs out of the house. He runs out of the house, running down the street, covered in blood, jumps in his truck and drives home. The mixture of cocaine, ecstasy, alcohol, adrenaline. He would have been a madman, an absolute madman. And he just jumps in his truck and he's driving like, oh gosh, okay. Why he left Jasmine at the house alone, I don't know. But she then steals her mother's bank card, goes to a bank machine and takes out money. I'm unsure if she showered before doing this because she did have to call a cab to take her to Jeremy's and possibly the ATM. So I don't really understand what happened in this in-between period, but I do know that Jeremy did leave her alone at the house and she did she was free to do whatever she wanted. She was free to call an ambulance. She was free to call the police. She was free to do whatever. And what does she do? She steals from her mother and heads to Jeremy's house. She arrives at Jeremy's around 5.30 a.m. Jeremy had showered. The two put their bloody clothes in a garbage bag and threw them in a dumpster around an apartment building. For some reason, their friends are still up and they go to the guy's house who had sold him cocaine the night before and they hang out there i'm not sure if they had sex there or if they had sex before arriving there but they did have sex after the murder and that is brought up in court later it's also brought up in the investigation that jeremy asked his friend how do you clean blood off knives to which his friend was like what i don't know what his friend responded but his friend was weirded out by this. He actually tells police this later. Was Jeremy planning on going back to the house to clean the murder weapons or something? Or why did he ask this? It kind of makes me think like they were toying with the idea of going back to the scene and maybe trying to figure out how to cover it up, which they never do. By this time, the sun has, it's gotta be coming up. But Jasmine and Jeremy, they leave the house they are at and they go find a party. So it's now Sunday morning and they do find this party where their friends are all still raging in someone's apartment and witnesses at that party say Jeremy and Jasmine were hanging out on the couch, grinding on top of each other and making out the entire time like they were both incredibly turned on. There was massive sexual energy coming from them. So just a situation check here. The situation is she's 12 years old. He's 23 years old. She's just brutally murdered her eight-year-old brother and he has just violently murdered her parents. And now they are dry humping on a couch while all their friends watch at about 6.30 on a Sunday morning. I just can't even imagine how troubled someone would have to be that this is their reality. Not the people watching, they're just partying, they're just young. But I mean, the two on the couch grinding after murdering. It's... Ugh, 
just makes my skin crawl. It's at this party where the two confide in a friend and they tell him what they did. And Jasmine even goes into detail about what her brother sounded like when she killed him, saying he gargled. And this is also later brought up in court when the friend testifies. There are so many similarities in the Twilight murders and this one, like I've said before, because that girl, she also said her sister made a gargling sound when she was killing her. Yeah, anyways. Those two, and in the Twilight murder case, those two also had sex after murdering her family, but they weren't 12 and 23. I believe they were both 16. And they didn't leave the house. They stayed in it with the bodies for three days. Around lunchtime, Jacob's friend from next door, he wants to go see if Jacob can come out and play. Jacob and this little boy, they had spent a lot of time together. They were friends. Um, And in fact, this little boy was supposed, was, and in fact, this little boy was supposed to have a sleepover with Jacob the night before, and he was supposed to stay at Jacob's house overnight. But something came up and the little boy instead went to a hockey game with his grandmother. And I'm sure that little boy's parents are thankful for that every single day. In a country where hockey is already pretty much a religion, this just would have made it stronger for them. This boy asks his mom if he can go over to see Jacob. She says, yeah, he runs over, he's knocking on the door, but there's no answer. He knows they're home because he can see Mark's, he can see Mark's truck in the driveway. So he looks around and he looks through a window and he sees Mark's body laying on the floor covered in blood. A boy discovered this scene a small boy and he rushes back to his mother and tells him what he had seen at first his mother thinks no that can't be right but once she went over to look for herself that's when panic set in she phoned police and told them to come quick then she was concerned that the attacker could still be lurking around the home and maybe even maybe around her home because they live next door she had no idea where the attacker was she's freaking out the police arrive they call for backup because they're like, yep, that's a bloody dead body in there. Let's call for backup. Backup arrives and they smash in the door because this is an urgent situation. They need to get in there. There's clear signs that something is wrong and they want to know if there's any survivors or if the people that they can see laying on the floor, if they need any medical aid, if they can save their lives. And at first, they don't know what the hell has happened in here. They don't know if Mark is a victim or if he was an attacker, but soon it becomes clear that he was the victim of a brutal crime and so was his wife. Deborah. This absolutely broke my heart when I read it in the book Runaway Devil, which I will link. The book said that when police found Deborah, the family dog was sitting by her side. Oh, it just brings tears to my eyes every time I think about that because this poor little dog was didn't know what was going on, didn't know why his owner was bleeding and dead, and it's just so sad because the dog's probably sitting beside Deborah because Deborah was probably the one who fed him and bathed him and walked him. And, and usually, I mean, not all the time, but usually the mom usually takes care of the family dog a lot more than anyone else in the household. So it's just so sad. Police are searching the home and clearing the rooms one by one. When they come across eight-year-old Jacob and the brutal bloody scene in which he was murdered. Absolutely devastating for those investigators to find. The house was covered in blood. Outside Jacob's room, the carpet was saturated, leading investigators to believe that's where Jacob's throat had been cut. They soon realize from a family photo that the daughter is missing. So they learn her identity and they start asking neighbors about her. We have three bodies here. There's four in this photo. We don't know where this girl is. What's going on? Let's move quick on this. At first, they think she had been taken and is possibly a missing child. She'd been abducted or who knows what. After all, she's 12. In this crime scene, it doesn't reflect the actions of a 12-year-old girl. So why would she be an immediate suspect? Okay, well, they put out an Amber Alert immediately. But they search her bedroom and things start to surface because they see her emails they see weird stuff in her room very dark terrifying stuff then they get the school's guidance counselor to search her locker and they find even more disturbing things such as a a drawing that jasmine had made about murdering her family and laughing at them as they die 
Police also read the emails between her and Jeremy about murdering her parents and that she wanted them dead and all this stuff that they had been talking about in emails. So now it had went from a missing persons to a murder suspect. Her name had already been released, I believe. So because she was so young when she was a murder suspect, I believe they had to, they couldn't say her name anymore because she was so young. So I think they were referring to her as JR or young girl. I'm not absolutely sure about that, but something happened there at this time but everyone already knew because they had already released the amber alert and the lookout and uh, it was just a whole messy situation at this time the two suspects jeremy and jasmine the two murder suspects were grinding on a couch at an apartment party in an afternoon on a Sunday, which ugh. for some reason I see this apartment as having garbage bags for curtains and a really stinky couch, possibly an animal in the home that's poorly cared for. I don't know. That's just where my imagination takes me when I think of that scene. None of that is confirmed. It's just what I see when I hear that situation. I see the smell of bong water, I guess is what I'm getting at. So I don't have exact details about the timeline over the next day, but I do know at some point, Jeremy and Jasmine and three of her friends take off to a town called Leader in neighboring Saskatchewan, which is 160 kilometers away from Medicine Hat, Alberta. News had gotten out that Jasmine was a murder suspect, and a lot of witnesses start coming forward and talking to police about Jeremy and Jasmine, like what they had told them or asked them stuff like that relating to the crime that had happened. The friend that he had begged to help him came forward and also the guy from the party that they had confided in, he also came forward and told police basically, yeah, they told me they did it and Jasmine even described the sounds her brother made as she killed him. This is how police learn that Jasmine and Jeremy are possibly headed to Leader and they put out a bulletin saying, be on the lookout for blah, 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 which is Jeremy's truck details and the two suspects details. There was a fresh faced cop on the job that day. In fact, so fresh, it was his first day working in Leader. And I believe that he does a good job, not in spite of it being his first day, but because it's his first day. Maybe he had something to prove. He was fresh. He was energetic. He was in it to win it. So he's not lazy. He's piecing things together and he's being strategic in his thinking. And he's thinking, hmm, what do trucks need? They're in a truck. They're just over 160 kilometers. What do they need? Well, trucks need fuel. As a new person in this town, where would they get fuel? Hmm, maybe the largest gas station in town, perhaps. So he goes to that gas station and he parks across the road and he waits two hours and boom, he sees him. 7 a.m., 7 a.m. at this point, it'd be Monday now. So it's 7 a.m. Monday. Jasmine's three friends go into the gas station. They get out of the truck. They go to the gas station to buy a wholesome breakfast, I'm sure. Well inside, they see a newspaper. But what catches their eye is that there is a huge picture of Jasmine on the front of that paper and an article detailing the murder of her family. And these girls claim they had no idea at that time that Jasmine and Jeremy had murdered her parents so they buy the paper and they go to give it to her thinking she's gonna freak out but instead she laughs wow that is scary as fuck it's possible her friends didn't know until this point but they know now the group then leaves the gas station with the police officer watching them and he calls for backup and he follows them and they end up arresting everyone in a vehicle. I think it was around 7.30 in a parking lot of a high school where they were all sleeping in the vehicle, taking a nap. 12-year-old Jasmine was arrested with no pants on, which I found disturbing for some reason. Maybe because it's like, mm, she's 12 and being arrested for murder and why are her pants off? I just, I don't like that detail at all. Anyways, the girls were totally unruly. They caused mayhem while in custody. They damaged the police car. They screamed and yelled profanities at police. They stole office supplies for some reason. I don't know why. They were just being crazy. But later they say they were so scared. Mm, okay. Police keep Jeremy separate from Jasmine. And the two, they're questioned separately. Here's a big mistake that was made on the police's end. Jasmine being 12 needs either a legal guardian or a lawyer present. 
while being questioned. But since she had murdered her legal guardians and there was no lawyer present during her interview, everything that she said in the interview was not admissible in court. So they couldn't use that in the trial. But she tells police that Jeremy killed Jacob. She does admit to trying to strangle Jacob, but says Jeremy put a lot of pressure on her to kill him. So she then admitting admitted to stabbing Jacob once in the chest and then seems to let police assume that Jeremy did the other three stabs in the throat slice. But investigators know her story doesn't make sense because she told them that she had brought a knife into Jacob's room and she had gotten the knife from the kitchen. So why would she bring a knife if she only wanted to strangle Jacob or to not kill him or to just put him to sleep or to whatever she was claiming? It wasn't making sense. An incredibly sad detail in Jasmine's accounts of the murders is that Jacob kept screaming, I'm too young to die repeatedly while he was being brutally murdered. As Jasmine is telling police that Jeremy is responsible for all three murders, Jeremy is in another room telling a slightly different story. And he's a man. He doesn't need a parent or guardian present. He could have a lawyer, but I don't think he had one present either. So everything he says that is admissible in court. He admits to killing Mark and Deborah, but he will not admit to having anything to do with Jacob's death. In fact, he tells police it was all Jasmine who killed Jacob, and he offers that without even being asked. So to me, that says he really wants it known that he did not murder a child. Jeremy tells police he only killed Mark and Deborah because Jasmine wanted it done so bad and he loved her. He also says he wanted to stop the plan from happening and tried, but she really wanted it. She really wanted her family dead which I'm like, Jeremy, just walk away. Why did you have to do this? Anyways, he's still a monster. When Jeremy describes the murders, he tells a gruesome story. He says after Jasmine murdered Jacob, she was emotionless, calm, and casually walked out of the blood-soaked bedroom to the sink and rinsed off the knife. Police think, hmm, how can we get as much information from the two of them without allowing them to talk to each other in the same room? And they come up with a note writing idea. They allow Jasmine and Jeremy to write notes back and forth. I'm assuming this is to get more information written down and maybe, you know, maybe a written confession even. These notes were so weird. They just talked about loving each other and using the word shall over and over again. I shall, shall we, shall. It's annoying. And it's, I don't know why they did this. They use it over and over again. Like it somehow made them sound medieval or like, I don't know, vampirist, vampiric. Is that a word? I don't know. Or something, but also using the terms like cuddle bunny and talking about their plan to live in a castle together and build an empire. It was a real mixed bag of dicks, This, these notes. Ugh. Jasmine ended her letter with, enjoy in sorrow, my sweet 666. Okay, they both seem very delusional and very detached from reality. Their perception of reality is a lot different from everyone else's. They seem to believe they are living in a movie where they can murder and have sex and turn into werewolves and live in a castle and build an empire. It's crazy. It is crazy how their fantasy just fully took over their lives because they were both encouraging it. Also, in these letters, Jeremy proposed to Jasmine, and Jasmine says yes. That's right, a 12-year-old bride, Jasmine. The wedding never happened, but something makes me think maybe they did this because they thought if they get married, then they can't testify against each other in court. I don't know. Or maybe they just thought 12 years old was the perfect age to get married, buy a castle, and build an empire. I don't know. While Jeremy is being held in jail, he is no tight-lipped criminal. He is telling other inmates what he did and what Jasmine did and how they did it and who did what. And police are listening to every word, obviously. Jeremy said he killed the parents and that Jasmine did the eight-year-old. Did the eight-year-old. He also says it was all Jasmine's idea and he only did it because he loved her. 
I'm sure overhearing a conversation isn't an, isn't as airtight as a face-to-face or recorded confession. So police come up with another plan. During the prison transport, Jeremy is placed with an officer posing as an inmate that is also being transported. And without engaging with Jeremy, Jeremy tells this other inmate slash undercover officer what he and Jasmine did. And everything's being recorded in this van. It's fitted out with listening devices, possibly even a video camera. I'm not sure, but it all was being recorded. And he says the same thing, that he killed the parents and Jasmine killed Jacob. Jeremy even goes into detail about what Jasmine did to Jacob and how she laughed about it later. We've got confessions. We've got evidence. We have charges laid. We have suspects in custody. So now it's time for the trial. Jeremy and Jasmine were tried separately as Jasmine is only 12, so she's not an adult, whereas Jeremy is a, fr- a full grown ass man. He could be, he could go to adult court, I guess. June 4th, 2007, Jasmine is Jasmine's indictment. Legal stuff, it's not all new to me, but it's, the detail is all new to me. So although I have heard the word indictment before, I was unsure what the difference is between being charged or a hearing or indictment. But according to Oxford Dictionary, indictment means a thing that serves to illustrate that a system or situation is bad and deserves to be condemned. Also a formal charge or accusation of a serious crime. When I dug a little deeper into Canadian law, I found that indictment offenses have no limitation period to when the accused is charged, tried, acquitted, and convicted, unquote. The same website I quoted that from, pardonwaivers.com, gives examples of indictment offenses, and they are all like murder, terrorism, drug trafficking, and all very serious offenses. Anyways, at Jasmine's indictment, there is 90 witnesses to say, yep, she told me that she wanted her parents dead or Jeremy asked me to help kill them or she told me her brother gargled when he died and Jasmine claimed all that stuff was jokes. Jokes. Really, Jasmine? Jokes? It's just a coincidence that you and Jeremy did kill your family then? I Okay, doesn't really doesn't really stand up in court if you ask me so she pled not guilty unbelievably her defense painted a picture of a controlled preteen being controlled by an older man and that she was made to do this evil act Um, and a but a 12 year old well she was no match for the prosecution and they trip her up they expose her lies they poke so many holes in her story absolutely slaughtered her on the stand july 4th 2007 jasmine richardson is found guilty of first degree murder times three when i hear this i think 75 years with possibility of parole after i don't know 20 50 years or something like that but remember she's a child and the sentencing is pretty outrageous to me jasmine only receives 10 years and not not in prison she was found to have psychological disorders but since she's so young that information was never released and i believe in canada law again i'm not a canadian lawyer i'm not a lawyer at all actually believe it or not but i believe that's the maximum sentence for a child and no more than six of those years can be served in an institution so um if that is true we do see it here because she receives a 10-year sentencing but because she has psychological disorders it's not in prison no no she is sent to a psychiatric institution for four years and then set free into society on conditional community supervision which means she gets to live her life she just has to report in and they are supposedly monitoring her and after four and a half years of doing that she is totally free at the age of 22 years old record cleared new name no evidence she was convicted of brutally slicing a child's throat wide open, stabbed him multiple times, laughed about it, and had her parents murdered. She's now 
She now lives free, not monitored by police. She's got a clean record. She's got a fake identity and her crimes will never come up on any police check. So that means she could be working any job and never has to tell her boss or whoever hires her, her her place of employment that she had been convicted of murder. So she could be working any job under the sun, including with children. She could be your neighbor. She could have children of her own. There is no limitations to what she can do because of the conviction. It doesn't exist anymore to her. She is free and clear at the age of 22. She did no prison time and in fact was allowed to study for six years while institutionalized. And when she was released, she went to university. So I don't know, rehabilitation is a real thing, but this just seems scary to me. Jeremy's trial, let's get into his trial. It was November of 2008 and his sentencing, it was more appropriate, but also not what I would expect from a crime like this. There was so much evidence showing brutality and premeditation. It was just wild. He did, however, claim self-defense. Okay, that to me seems like an incredibly weak defense in this case, but he did claim it. It didn't go over well at all. He was convicted of first degree murder times three and sentenced to 25 years in prison. Here's what I don't understand. If he killed one person or 10 people in that home that night, would he only get 25 years? Is that the maximum sentencing in Canada? If you do a mass murder on the same night, can you only be convicted or sentenced to 25 years? What I don't understand is why isn't it per life he took? Why isn't it 25 years per person? And when does it get to the point where it is per life? Does it have to be on separate nights? How much of a cooling off period needs to be in between the murders before you get a 25 year sentence per life? I don't know. I don't get it. But to me, it seems like it should have been 75 years. From what I gather, Jeremy could possibly be released in 2033 when he is 50 years old. Jasmine has no conditions on her freedom, so she could probably look him up and do this all over again if she wanted to. And that is really, really scary to me. I am so interested in learning more about the legal system because to me, it just seems like a lucky dip bag. And every time someone goes to trial, the judge reaches into a bag and blindly pulls out a sentence. I don't know. I mean, I guess they have to work within the confines of the law and with age. It just, it just seems so complicated to me. So that wraps up all the knowledge I have on this case. I will post my sources in my show notes as per usual. But real quick, I want to throw out an idea. So I've been thinking about a small segment for my podcast to talk about either at the end of the episode or maybe at the beginning. I think at the end as like a little mood lifter because some cases are quite heavy and dark like this one. All the cases are quite heavy and dark and can leave you feeling sad, you know? But so I had this idea. Since my main income job is serving, I work at a restaurant, I know how terrible some customers can be, but I also know how I can have a good laugh about it later with friends and have a drink and just vent about it, and, you know, just shake off all that negative energy maybe I've taken on from a customer. So I would like anybody out there, if you work in hospitality, if you work in retail, if you work in customer service, I would like to share your nightmare customer stories on my podcast. They can be anonymous. I'm not going to say where you work. You know, you can just say, hey, I don't want my name in this. You don't even have to add your name. But please email them to me at hellnopodcast@outlook.com. They can be short. They can be funny. They can be long. They can be scary. You can also send me a DM of the story on my Instagram, hellno, a true crime podcast. Um, and I would love to read your hilarious or scary customer service, hospitality, retail stories. Thank you. Thank you in advance for doing that. Um, if you're listening on Apple Podcast, please rate and review. If you're listening on Spotify, please rate and follow. And I always love it when you guys tell your friends about my podcast. So please keep sharing that. I, it really means a lot to me. To Jeremy and Jasmine, I say hell no. Thanks for listening. See you next week. Bye. Uh, 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 uh.